Welcome to our second webinar on the judiciary. Um, I think it's a very important webinar. We, the last one was very successful. We had a wonderful, at least I learned a lot, a huge amount. Um, judiciary is an important institution that we'll come to, but let me begin, I think, where we should begin. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the famous judge of the Supreme Court of the US died yesterday. And I think it's quite appropriate to celebrate her and to remember her, um, all her achievements as far as rights of women and disadvantage are concerned, weight discrimination, healthcare environment, so many things that she functioned, that she influenced. Uh, and she highlighted what's important about the judiciary. How do we manage to get very good, competent judges, people that the whole world appreciates because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is appreciated all over the world. And of course, the American judiciary owes a lot to judges like that. The whole history of the US is full of great um, judges, but also controversial decisions. I won't say they were without their controversial decisions. They had a lot of very controversial decisions, pro-slavery decisions, for example, and we should bear that in mind too. So judiciary is not infallible. And there's a huge amount of commentary in the US that talks about uh, you know, judiciary. So judiciary is something that should be commented on and discussed like all other institutions of the state. Now we have had our own judges and great judges. So I polled a few lawyers today and I must confess they came up with these four names, which is kind of interesting. I called a few lawyer friends and they said, Durab Patel, Kiani Saab, and uh, of course, Cornelius, and then Iftikhar Chaudhary. So there we are, that we've had some great judges too, and we should talk about that too. Today, we've got a great panel to talk about judging judges, dynamics of the Pakistani system, just delivery. Sama Sadiq, who has uh, sort of conjured up these sessions, he's the intellectual guru of these sessions. I'm just there as the major domo. Sama is, is the one to be uh, complimented and credited with this. So he's going to help us think it through along with Sara Malkani, um, who herself is a lawyer, obviously everybody's a lawyer and well-known lawyer. And then we've got Asad Jamal. So we've got three very good lawyers, young people who are well-versed with the situation and they'll tell us about the judiciary. I'll get out of the way very soon. I'll tell you why we, uh, we economists are interested in this. I won't go into detail in it, but just one chart. Institutions are very important. And as you can see, this is property rights and property rights cannot exist without the judiciary. So the judiciary is very important to us economists and we should think about it. And even law or all other economic institutions are extremely important to us. And we in Bide are trying to understand about all institutions of Pakistan from democracy to the civil service, to education, all the institutions in Pakistan we are talking about. And unfortunately, unfortunately the reason we are poor and grow at a slow rate is because our institutions are bad. Our institutions, well, bad is a strong word, but our institutions are very weak. And we really, we've learned a lot from various thinkers. If we don't develop our institutions, we won't grow. And that's why we are focusing now on the judiciary along with other things. So, so that's uh, the reason that we want to go forward. Now, um, let me go down. So here we have, we've been doing a lot of th um, thinking in PID and 
I just want to put this before you. We've learned that poor policy, poor policy development, inconsistent policy, including judgments, have caused us a lot of harm. I heard the other day some politicians talking about it, how judgments have impeded the economy. Uh, transaction costs are very high. Uh, human resource management is lacking. Market development doesn't seem to be happening. Energy is a governance problem. Our cities are a governance problem. So there's a huge issue. Cities now are a judicial problem. The judiciary says our cities should not grow. So that's a huge problem. Um, efficiency of courts is a huge issue. We talked about that last time too, and we're going to, of course, talk about it today. Time taken, the whole world is measured. Consistency uh, of decisions is measured. Informed decision-making is measured. Economic activity, how ju ju judgments affect economic activity is measured. Rights and technology and how they impact on judicial decisions are also important. These are all subjects for research. And one of the reasons we are doing these webinars is we hope to encourage young people to take up these subjects for research because institutions are only built when research is undertaken and people talk about those institutions. Okay. So the reason we are interested, as I told you, our investment rate remains low. And every investor tells me, I polled a few investors today too, they said, hey, we are uncertain about the law and, and the judges, we, how can we invest? Judicial investment is a 20-30 year decision. And if you can't be certain of the law, we are in trouble. Same thing, our um, growth rate is declining. Of course, if your investment is low, your growth rate is declining. And then, of course, my famous cartoon that I love to show, uh, not my cartoon, somebody made it, that the IMF is chasing us and we are running around helter-skelter for loans over a craggy landscape without knowing what we do. It depicts Pakistan's situation very well. We also have this thing that we have been to the IMF in every decade in the last, uh, in our history, I should say, uh, which shows that we've been in the emergency ward for a long time. And that is worrisome, scary. Um, this is an important cartoon to bear in mind. That look, uh, our ancestors also discovered it. 1950. Sorry to interrupt, sir. Sir, your screen is stuck on second slide, sir. Okay. Okay. Let's see. So, let's stay at the cartoon. Okay. Cartoon is Yes, sir. So, Liakat Ali is standing there on dollar crutches and people at the back. The paymasters are saying, hey, let's keep them weak, okay? So here, let me just quickly show you this slide with the, the IMF holding uh, uh, the, the reins and keeping us running for loans. And let me quickly show you this slide too, how many fund programs we've had, okay? So today, we're going to take up the, well, we took up the judiciary last time. And um, Osama gave us a great view of case law management. And I think that's something that we could all understand because we are economists. Uh, we know about management. So Sama's thing came as very good uh, advice to us that there is some stuff that can be managed by the judges by focusing on data and managing data well. Now let's focus on judicial appointments, training, regulation, performance, tenure, etc. And here, I think uh, this is again, by the way, we look at this civil service in the same way, we try and look at education the same way. I think human institutions are based on human beings. So we must look at it this way. So it's important to think about these things. It's not meant as any, um, you know, uh, you know detrimentary comment on the judges or whatever, but it's something that we focus on. So with that, let me turn to Osama, who knows the subject far better than me to guide us through this discussion. Osama, can you set the tone for this discussion? 
I can try. Thank you very much, Nadeem, and also for this very dynamic forum. I'm particularly happy about the fact that we are actually looking at different institutions and including the judiciary as one of the institutions about which there ought to be a critical, robust, open debate. So as a preamble, I think it's important to mention the fact that one of the most inhibiting factors as far as looking at the judiciary and talking about reforms is concerned is the fact that it has been treated as a sacred cow when it comes to an open conversation and open discourse. You know, So you have the constitutional provision talking about the judiciary and the military. You have all kinds of usages of contempt law. There has been uh, a very weak sort of academy. Uh, and far often, uh, the debate is sort of very much uh, hijacked by high-profile political cases. There has been very little scholarly work, and there has been relatively little sort of open debate about the judiciary as an institution. And I emphasize that because the more you look at other jurisdictions, it turns out that the judiciary, um, sorry, just for a second. Um, it turns out that the uh, judiciary is something which is looked upon at multiple levels and through different levels. So I think what's very important is to look at judiciary from an institutional standpoint. How is it structured? How is it historically governed? That has a huge impact on, on the outcomes. The other very important facet is, of course, looking at judiciary from a sociological standpoint. You know, Ultimately, it's the people, their background, their class preferences, their education, their cliques, which has a bearing on all kinds of things. And you can see that uh, when you look at the, the deep scrutiny of the candidates for the US Supreme Court, how they're looking at every single political inclination. We don't go into that level, of course, but I think that matters. And the third is, I think it's very, very important to also look at the judiciary empirically in terms of quantifiable gauges for their performance. The problem here is that, you know, we don't even bifurcate the judiciary in terms of its very essential purpose of dispute resolution, which is really a service delivery like anything else, and its function as a protector of rights or the role of the constitutional courts. And whereas the argument of independence of judiciary uh, can, can be a partial reason why you have to be slightly inhibited in your debate about that particular role, the service delivery role should be open for discussion and that's the role we spoke about last time. But mm -hmm. even about the constitutional role, you know, I think there are debates and discourses which are very, very important. So I'm very pleased that I have two other colleagues uh, joining us today, Sarah and Asad. And mm -hmm. perhaps what we can do is to at least briefly lay out what we feel are the major challenges mm -hmm. or the major sort of analytical paradigms in order to understand and grasp what this institution really means. Uh, and, and, and obviously, we can't discuss everything, and every single theme actually can have a webinar of its own. But I think if we can lay out some issues and have a bit of debate like that, it could sort of provide fodder for future conversations as well. So to my mind, the most important thing to look at is where do our judges come from, starting out, right? So before we get to the appointment itself, we have to look at legal education. Uh, I have worked for a long time in the area of legal education, and I have some particular sort of observations to make, but I'd much rather go to my colleagues first, get their take, and then maybe I can add my two cents as well to how the system of legal education ultimately determines the quality and the efficiency of justice, which is actually disseminated in our courts. So Sarah, if I could start with you first, perhaps, if you we could get some 
uh, indication of what you think about this theme? Sarah, can you hear me? You're back on mute. You'll have to unmute yourself. Sarah, look for the unmute button. Yes, that's fine. I do. I do see it. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. So thank you, uh, Osama. Um, and thank you for the invitation. So, um, you know, I can just share uh, some, uh, you know, observations with respect to, you know, what I perceive to be the, um, the, the legal education system here and how that impacts uh, the, the judges and then uh, the, the quality of um, dispute resolution and uh, judgments that come uh, from that system. So, I think you would be aware um, that, uh, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, there are a number of um, accredited law universities and law schools here in the country, and the basic minimum qualification to be enrolled as a lawyer and then to be eligible to be a judge at the very, um, uh, at, at the level where it starts, at the lower judiciary, which is at the level of the civil judge uh, or a judicial magistrate, is to have um, an LLB. Um, and uh, we do have um, uh, uh, more recently um, these uh, these um, uh, external programs which are affiliated with the University of London, and those are becoming increasingly popular, at least I understand, in Karachi and Lahore, and those are also being recognized by our bar councils, and I think they're also being recognized as a prerequisite to um, to a qualifying to be uh, a judge again at the lower judiciary level. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that um, there is varying quality of education that is is available, and I think access depends to a large extent on your class background, obviously, um, and the extent to which you're able to get education at a private institution or at a government institution. So, obviously, um, as in all fields, uh, and law is one of them, the quality of education uh, really depends on on what kind of resources you are able to access. As you know, this is just very broadly speaking, just making a generalization. Um, and so, you know, with that, you you do see, um, you know, and this is now based on on my observations of of the of the judges that are very recently being qualified at the level of um, civil judge and and magistrate. And and in Karachi, to be honest, you do see quite a variation um, in terms of you know the confidence uh, with which they handle um, cases and also the kind of level of um, of sensitivity, be it uh, you know gender sensitivity, or um, be it class sensitivity, or just be it a general level to commitment to uh, justice, and 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 what I would see is that there is that there is quite a wide degree of variation. Um, 
you do have uh, now in uh, Karachi itself uh, many, uh, quite a few judges who are getting qualifications from law universities that are outside of Karachi. So in Hyderabad and in Sakhar and so on. Um, and uh, but you know again with that you're seeing some degree of variation with the kind of skills and competency level. I can't uh, necessarily explain why uh, there is a high uh, degree of variation given that uh, you know at the end of the day they are taking an exam as you know before they qualify at that level. Um, but but there, there there you have it. So um, uh, I think that uh, there's that one extent of it, and then uh, there are the judicial academies. Uh, so we have a judicial academy here in Karachi, and uh, it's uh, supposed to provide regular trainings to judges to keep them up to date with recent legal developments, um, and uh, you know obviously to keep them abreast of various specialized areas in the law. Um, and, uh, you know, my um, understanding of that is that, you know, while the Sin Judicial Academy here is, uh, is fairly active and it's functioning, my experience of it often has been that especially with respect to legislation that is enacted more recently in the last five years or in the 10 years, often judges are not aware of it. And uh, you really have to present the laws to them and uh, kind of really guide them through it. And uh, that's sometimes a little disappointing. It's you know not clear why the judicial academies are not always keeping them up to date with the laws. But I think that that aspect of, of legal education for judges, which is continuing legal education and training, is um, not as uh, developed as, as I think it would like, as it should be. And then the other aspect of it, which is general administration, so managing your docket, and then also, you know, um, writing orders and judgment writing. I think that's something that, you know, is not going to be taught to you at, a, at an LLB level, at a bachelor level, or something that you're necessarily going to be examined on. That's something that they actually need support with. And I feel like that's often not there either. Um, and so that's maybe something that the judicial academies need to work on as well. So I think that's where some of the sure. some of the gaps yeah. lie. Okay. Okay. Hmm. But Osama, let me interject here. Is it a question of just legal education or is it the ecosystem of the law? I thought law was a profession where you guys constantly had to update yourself because every case is different and every case you are you are preparing again. So despite that, why is it that uh, everybody complains about legal education? Is it because universities don't have any research? Is it because there's not enough law researchers available? Yeah. Osama. Can you hear me? Yes. So oh, I ahead. would like to bifurcate my answer because I think there's a history to how other jurisdictions have looked at legal education, right? So mm -hmm. one view of the legal profession is mm -hmm. that these are people who look at precedents, who mm -hmm. look at the similarity or differences of cases, mm -hmm. and all that the law school need to do is to teach them comparatively clinical courses, of course, some substantive courses, so that they can Concept. go into the, and do that. The other approach, of course, to legal education is that legal education institutions also engage in knowledge production. That's where more analytical paradigms come in. You can actually start questioning the system. 
and weber of course made this dichotomy he was the first one who came up with this entire notion of how to look at legal education and did some seminal work now in our context i think part of the reason why that critical bent is not there is because there is a traditional subservience which is associated with the law maybe that's a colonial uh, hangover because you know the law is the instrument of coercion and power and the judge is this exalted being so the you know i've spoken to so many students from so many different walks of life and when i tell them that look you need to develop a critical bent you need to question things as well they think that that's somehow impolite the other very simple reason is that you have hardly any local textbooks you have hardly any scholarship and the entire culture of teaching law is not critical it's almost as if you take the gospel truth and you reproduce the judgments or synopses of the same rather than looking at the fact that law is just a manifestation of policy and you have policy choices or it is a choice between different ethical or philosophical positions right so we don't go that way but to build on what sara uh, said slightly and to give you a bit more of a background on the legal education i agree with her observation and i then we should get mm. asad's uh, view as well but mm. i've worked on legal education since 2004 mm. and mm. i think there are some very well understood uh, mm. issues uh, of mm. curriculum of pedagogy mm. of the mm. governance mechanism of the law schools we have governance issues with all legal institutions but mm. law in particular mm. is being legal education is either being imparted by public sector universities Mm. and this is a big question why the legal faculty has always been so backward is it because mm. lawyers have always been very active in opposing martial laws and therefore there was a push back against this discipline and the lawyers were too politicized and scholarship mm. went out mm. of the window uh so that's one question the other mm. uh, kinds of institutions are the private institutions and unfortunately what happens is that there are a lot of private sector players who are actually lawyers who mm. own these law schools and they are very opposed to the idea of any reform the other mm. very big issue here is that of a governance confusion issue mm. so you have both the pakistan bar council and the higher education commission who are legally endowed with the power to regulate mm. you can't have two swords and one scabbard and this has been an issue which has been pointed out time and again the net result is no one takes the onus some progress has taken place in the sense that when we started the lums program we tried mm. to upgrade pedagogy and curriculum and we had long negotiations with these regulators we did find some space we did change the and the idea of a five year hybrid ba llp program also uh, became popular and a lot of people emulated that not realizing that in order to have a proper ba llp program you need to invest both in regular faculty law faculty and social sciences faculty the other big issue is that why have we not been able to attract people to the legal academy the incentive structure is incredibly poor the opportunity cost is very high and we have frankly not built any role models in terms of people who have written treatises and things like that and the general sort of anti intellectual norms that we have in society have been short you see a historian a political scientist all these people also uh, find some audience beyond the country law tends to be a bit more of a municipal <laughs> subject you have to have a country wide focus unless you go into international law or comparative law So I think the lack of faculty the lack of knowledge production the very vocational approach to legal education has meant that now the legal profession in many ways has become the easiest profession to adopt because the hurdle the bar to cross is literally very low uh, and so what has happened and asad will bear me out is that the number of lawyers who have been enrolled over the last 5 to 10 years has gone many fold upwards 
And when you have so many new people and you try and impose standards, may it be bar exam, may it be continuing legal education, the opposition is also much stronger. So, uh, so I just wanted to flag some of but these Asad issues. Sahab, uh, but let me let me come to Asad. Asad Sahab, look, I am an economist and I believe in the market. So we've got 10,000 lawyers in the market. Great, wonderful. What's wrong with that? Let the numbers increase, the fees will be low and the best people will emerge through competition. I remember my friend Anwar Kamal was doing a full report on legal education for the Supreme Court Chief Justice and well, many stories with that, but one uh, I had a long discussion with them, and many lawyers wanted a five. I think you've got a five-year uh, law program now, no. which I think is creating an obstacle. So, Sasab, are you favor in favor of creating entry barriers, or should we have a wide uh, competitive I market? There, I think there should be effective barriers. I don't know if the barriers that we have right now are effective enough to. <laughs> exclude incompetent or uh, poorly educated uh, 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 graduates to uh, to be kept out of the profession. I think that that's something which we need to look into deeply. Um, uh, uh, other than, I mean, uh, you, you said that uh, let a lot of people come into the profession and let there be competition and the best would survive and move on. Uh, that's not happening. So because uh, the legal education, as it has al already been pointed out uh, in, in uh, good detail by Osama and uh, Sarah, that it's not quality-wise, it's not good. So we have lawyers coming in the market uh, who, who do not understand, who, do not, who are not equipped with analytical tools which are required for the profession to be ably serve the litigants in the market. And uh, they don't have the critical minds which a lawyer should have in order to be able to uh, make progress, uh, uh, make the profession progress. Uh, and these are the very people who become part of the district judiciary and they also become part of the higher judiciary. And that's why I think uh, we have very, uh, both the judiciaries in poor shape. Uh, most of our judges do not know how to write judgments. Uh, as Sarah also refer to it. So, so what's the solution? Um, uh, judicial academies have been referred to in the in the conversation. They too don't have any plans. I'm not sure. I think uh, Osama can uh, throw some light on that. Uh, uh, what kind of judges are being trained and what kind of programs do we have in our judicial academies? I think we, we are very poorly equipped to train our lawyers in order to become, uh, make them, turn them into good judges. Okay, Sarah, so we've got a wide, broad market for lawyers where number of people with all hues and varieties of caliber come in. How do these, how do we select judges from there? Again, going back to my market analogy, we should be able to draw the best people into judges. Are we doing that? Or what is the problem with selecting good judges and making the system work? So let's take a systemic view and just tell us about that. Sarah? So, you know, I think, I mean, there are different levels. Can you, can you hear me? 
Yeah, I think I'm unmuted. Yeah, so, so there are obviously you know there are different levels. So the the appointment process at the lower judiciary level is different from that of the right. higher judiciary. But we can talk about the lower judiciary from yeah. now, since that's where you know majority of Indians have access. Mm-hmm. So that goes through an examination process, and that examination process is you know regulated by the administrative um. Committees of high courts essentially is supervised uh, by senior high court level judges, and there is an examination process that that they undergo. Um, I, uh, you know, have not having uh, been through the process, and, and I don't know much details about kind of what they're uh, exactly exactly what they're examined on. But my understanding is that you know it's very objective kind of you know. Um, Like we uh, uh, you know knowledge-based questions about you know what does the criminal procedure court say about something and what does the you know civil procedure court say. So again, very objective uh, questions um, uh, and and they require a rote memorization of of what the laws are. And then I understand if I'm not wrong that is also followed by an interview process before they're confirmed. So. Um, my understanding is that you know they're not really uh, assessed on on um, you know more um, subjective skills of what it would take to be um, you know a, a high quality judge um, they're not really assessed on you know uh, on a range of other you know um, non objective uh, criteria and uh, so it's not really a very kind of comprehensive um uh, uh, uh entrance uh, uh filter um which, which is my understanding and 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 so they're not uh, you know fully um uh, uh even acquainted with with all that it would take to be um a, a, a judge and, and just to you know be able to comprehensively deliver justice so at that level where the idea is that you know um and and that notion of of memor of of just rote memorizing laws without any critical thinking or critical understanding is something that's reinforced so so those critical thinking critical uh, understanding skills they're not reinforced at the university level and they're not really reinforced at the level of examination of judges and so obviously you see that reflected in um the way uh, you know these uh, these um uh, uh judges then perform um you know but but, but i think and me i know asad and sama might uh, might uh, attest to this that you know a judge and a lawyer have a very kind of dynamic interaction right so so a lot of the quality i think of judgments really also depends on the level of assistance that a lawyer provides so in our situations what we have is that also because we don't have lawyers with that level of uh, critical understanding or that level of of um, competence of dealing with the law they're not really able to push the judges assist them properly to write and to you know to 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 pass some um, high level judgment and to author high level judgments either sure. and so that kind of level of so that's kind of reinforced you know that okay. um, that that uh, quality is reinforced hmm. but uh, uh, sama let me ask you so we've got an examination we've got the superior so uh, higher judiciary looking after the lower judiciary now 
why is it why we can't now thinking like an economist the reason we won't be able to recruit good judges at the lower let's focus on the lower judiciary for a moment would be a because the exam is not well conducted the investigations are not well conducted etc hiring is not according to talent but the second thing also is that maybe the incentives are not strong enough so the lower judiciary does not get the respect or the um or the emoluments that they get so can you frame for us how does it work in the rest of the world why is it sure. in the sure. us lower judiciary gets good judges so it's always uh, partially a public calling right when you become a judge it's a matter of prestige so social signaling does matter i don't think the financial signaling is an issue anymore because i think the emoluments the salaries and all these things as far as the district judiciary is is concerned has really gone up over the last 7 year 8 years that's one good thing i don't think i mean the district and session judge now gets a very good package the uh, uh, you can still point out infrastructure issues and equipment issues and things like that but the salaries are much much better than before but despite that it turns out if you look at the public service commission exam results and things like that very few people actually even manage to clear that very low bar of the exam so then you go back to what kind of a training are they getting so much as the examination system is far from being analytical and rigorous and all that they are not even being able to cross that in 2004 when we first started talking about the bar exam the huge pressure from the bars was that it should be an ornamental thing and everybody should pass and we try to tell them that this is a filtering mechanism right so uh, so even now the bar exam is not functioning but i think the fundamental problem once again is that if i were to ask you how many treatises have ever been written or when was the last time a treatise was written on the law in pakistan that's a pertinent question because yeah. look mediocrity breeds mediocrity unless there are books and materials and discourses which are managing to raise the intellectual level of certain people who then push other people made be lawyers pushing judges or judges pushing lawyers or academics so i mean to my mind perhaps all of 10 books of any credibility of any international value have been written in pakistan since 1947 and that includes books on the pakistani legal system by foreign authors so the first book which can be called a treatise is a book by ak barohi back in the 1950s and then it's arguable that till today has anyone had that kind of a canvas a few good books have come out justice wasal karim has done some very good commentaries on administrative and civil uh, law but he's a real exception we don't get books from judges except for memoirs we don't get books from lawyers by and large except just printing the bare statute giving a few references to case law and writing a preface and that passes for a book so if that is the level of knowledge production and critical debate in law which is an area which requires a lot more debate because there are no definite positions to be taken according to the laws of mathematics these are negotiated positions then that tells you so i can also tell you that there are hardly any if any textbooks in pakistan leave aside treatises that's a much more elevated production mm -hmm. but you need textbooks you can't just take a textbook from england and start teaching about pakistan the way law is taught here is people are given the statute if the teacher is really good maybe there'll be some reference to case law but they'll basically say pld 1978 uh, page number 347 para 3 and that para 3 then is gospel nobody is processing what para 3 says what's the context does it you know so i think you can't get away from the fact that unless you fix your legal education system and mind you multiple efforts have been made but 
I think legal education has never been a priority, even for foreign funded programs. So we've received the most money compared to anyone else in the world for law reform. And yet legal education was something nobody invested in. I don't know why that short sighted approach. How can you fix the courts and the bars without fixing legal education? In my meandering to gain a career, I became half a lawyer. Somewhere along the way, I did an FEL from the Punjab Law College. And I remember it was kind of a bizarre FEL because in those days we were young, we never studied anything. And all we did was go to the, um, Anwar Kamal, my friend, tutored me. I went to the Urdu Bazaar, got get through guides. And we, I managed to get a first division, which was fine. No problem. I meant to do an LB, never did it, my mistake. But one thing that I noticed from that, Asad Saab, was we had no permanent faculty in the law college. It was lawyers coming in and teaching us part-time. Is that, and I believe that still is the situation. I check in the law colleges, it's still the situation. Lums, apart from Lums, I think there's hardly any permanent faculty in this country. So what Osama is talking about is music to my ears, but how can a, a lack of a permanent faculty create the treatises and the textbooks? Second thing is, can you tell us about the judicial academies? What are these animals and why don't they have uh, legal scholars there? Uh, Satsap? Um, um, no, I, I don't think we can create uh, academies. Um, in the present uh, circumstances. And so far as judicial academies are concerned, I think Osama is better placed to explain them. But I would go back to what you earlier said, that uh, judges are uh, selected to serve in the district judiciary and the higher judiciary is uh, looking after them, which is, I think, uh, some a very important uh, thing to uh, consider whether the higher judiciary or the high courts can really look after the district judiciary. This is an important question, which has not been seriously considered, it seems. Uh, and Osama would uh, perhaps uh, uh, explain why, why, what may be the alternative uh, to what we have right now. But then, uh, you know, I mean, the whole process of selection of judges is questionable. And uh, let me uh, mention that at the higher judiciary level in the for the high courts and the Supreme Court, what is being practiced right now is questionable both on the time of what constitution prescribes in Article 175A. I mean, the whole process is, uh, 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 is, is, is marred by uh, uh, confidentiality. Uh, there is no transparency in how judges are, you know, picked and then uh, considered for appointments to the higher judiciary. And uh, the same is true for uh, the district judiciary so far as their appointments are concerned. Once selected, they are appointed in this different districts. And the way they are manipulated higher judiciary is also something which uh, I think is of uh, uh, scandalous proportion, I would say. Um, um, uh, the way they are uh, transferred from one district to another, the way they are uh, uh, used by the higher judiciary for, for, for whatever purposes uh, is something which we should all be very, very worried because that is where the rot starts and it goes to the top. Um, uh, so I think uh, we need to reconsider the whole mechanism. These institutions, the judiciary and the bar councils, they have insulated themselves. The, the institutional frameworks 
the Bar Council Act, the, um, the, the way it is regulated by lawyers alone, and they are function, uh, uh, you know, or they are they are manned by lawyers alone, and that is questionable. And then judiciary alone is capable, capable of selecting and then appointing judges, and then uh, they are considered to be the only competent um, and ultimate uh, uh, group of uh, people who would run the institutions of judiciary. I think that is very, very problematic. We need help from other institutions. We need to have uh, um, uh, participation from other uh, segments of the society. We need in the bar councils, people from civil society and other professional groups. This, uh, I mean, uh, an important uh, thing that you must have noticed is that uh, the hooliganism that lawyers have been committing over the last uh, decade and more more than that i think that's that's very important that they are, they have not held accountable uh, the same is true judges they are not being held accountable the mechanism provided for in the constitution has been um, uh, simply rendered in, in inconsequential so these are all very important questions which which ultimately lead to the uh, 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 you know uh, reasons with why we are in such a bad shape in mm -hmm. level. but uh, yeah. let me come to osama osama look the constitution and going back to montesquieu or whatever yes we need separation of powers and yes, judicial independence is important, and nobody can deny that. And yes, um, the, the movement of the lawyers was important, and we all agree judiciary should be independent. Now, without affecting the independence of the judiciary, how can we take the appointment of the judges out of the hands of the judges? How can we make it make it a system that is serving the people? For example, the exam that you said that doesn't serve a purpose, how do we change it? Uh, let's focus on the lower judiciary for a while, then we'll go to the upper judiciary, although Asad Sab has raised some very good points in the upper judiciary. But please tell me how we can fix the lower judiciary. It's a very important uh, cornerstone of the system. So in a way, um... am I on mute? Yeah, in a way, all this is connected, if you think about it, with the... Mm -hmm. Administration mm -hmm. of Justice on the head last week, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the main mm -hmm. findings of that thing was that power mm -hmm. is incredibly centralized when it comes mm -hmm. to any decision to do with courts. The rest of the stakeholders are not spoken to. There's no external accountability. And independence of judiciary is the cloak. So one big issue is the centralization of power. And the other big issue is opaqueness, right? So we don't know what goes on inside. And barring a few privileged perhaps consultants or senior government officials, uh, as a citizen, you're not even privy to whether this institution is functioning properly, what are the parameters, no information is published. Um, and, the, and I think that manifests itself in multiple ways. I'll give another example. So Asad mentioned the judicial academies. So we started off with the, perhaps the first academy was the Sin Judicial Academy and the Federal Judicial Academy are the two oldest academies. Mm -hmm. And now every province has one because it became a fad and so, you know, the foreign funded program. When you say oldest, when were those set up? I believe it's been around for around 30 years, but I'll have to fact check uh, something like that. Um, and, you know, the Punjab one came about a decade and a half ago. I was one of the co-writers of the law which set it up. And the KP one and the Balochistan ones came later. And they have different levels of performance. But what is really common in all of them, and that's the common point I want to make, 
is that all of them are closely controlled by the judiciary, right? So that manifests itself in two ways. First of all, the faculty that you hire hardly has any incentive or autonomy or any sort of upscaling of their skills because they're all reporting to the chief justice or a judge nominated by the chief justice. And we only already know they have 15 things on their plate. So this gets neglected. Secondly, just because you're a judge does not necessarily mean that you understand education and what an education system requires. Thirdly, despite multiple recommendations, the critical mass of faculty, permanent faculty, that you need to be teaching here hasn't gone up. And the fourth thing, there's a very clear myopia that if you're training judges, it can only be done through judges. Even though time and again, we have made recommendations that a judge should be exposed to more multifarious influences. There should be somebody from a women's NGO, an environmentalist, a prosecutor, an academic, and a judge teaching them. Otherwise, you'll have this very narrow conservative uh, didactic, dogmatic notion of the law. So once again, the problems are very well understood. It goes back to who controls this decision-making and turns out that the control is with the senior most judges who are not willing to share this decision-making with anyone else. And when the government tries to interfere in that, they say you are impinging on our independence, which is why it is very important to have much more open debates like this on this theme so that hopefully some like-minded and progressive judges can acknowledge the fact that they cannot run the Federal Judicial Academy and all the provincial academies, administrative justice in all the districts, uphold the constitution, hear their cases. There too, you know, there's also the Law and Justice Commission at the federal level. So a lot of these institutions, a lot of resources have been invested into them. But if you look at their TORs and if you look at what exactly they produce, there's a lot to be desired. But I think this opaqueness and this um, centralization of power, especially in the chief justices, is a big administrative issue. Hmm. But uh, Sarah, how is it done in the rest of the world? You must have experience of the rest of the world. I mean, how, how does our uh, um, former col colony, the UK does this, they have a very strong system of local justices, the magistrates and you know, justices of peace, etc. Are they controlled by the by the by the uh, English High Court or Supreme Court, or what? How does this work, and why can't we get rid of it? Why can't the Judicial Academy, for example, be totally independent? I believe these these things can be autonomous, right? I mean, simple. They can be autonomous. Board can be anybody, anybody, you, Osama, anybody else. Why can't we have that, Sarah? I uh, I just my video on. So um, I, I won't be able to speak much to what happens in the UK. I'm, I'm, more I'm, I'm slightly more familiar with, a, with the system in the United States and that's where I happen to get my legal. Talk about the United States, so I can, you know, so so it's it's um you know there the the system as you know it's really varies a lot by state. So one um. One way in which there's a significant departure from the centralization that uh, Osama talked about is that uh, states really determine to a large extent how the the, the state uh, court judges are appointed, and there we see a huge variation. You know, so we know that in the U.S. the appointment of some judges happens actually by election, so people actually vote in who the judges are. So your typical notion that there has to be very tight separation and the judiciary must you know be uh, very insulated from any other influence is completely uh, overturned there, right? So state judges are elected uh, by the people and then they 
they are uh, you know uh, removed from office if they don't manage to secure a majority vote so their system of accountability really comes from from the people and then you know in in, in other states yeah, Sarah, uh, that's in some states in other states that's in some states in other states uh, even the state judges are appointed and the state courts of appeal which is the highest court i think they don't have anything to do with lord lord judiciary they don't control the lord judiciary or am i wrong did you get what i said so so yes yeah, so for example um, yes yeah, so in, in other in in uh, in other states and even at the federal court level it's not the supreme court that's determining whether or not a judge has committed misconduct or whether a judge is uh, um, uh, liable to remain in office it's uh, really um, at the level of local state assemblies or at the level of under elected representatives who are maintaining that check and balance so when you talk about judges being impeached for uh, misconduct or negligence or incompetence that's really being done by uh, by legislative bodies um you know and they might set up committees of experts and so on to advise them but uh, that that kind of check and balance is happening from your legislative bodies whether it be the state legislative bodies or the federal legislative bodies so um that uh, centralization that uh, sama was talking about is not a model that's followed everywhere else in the world and i think you know it's important to ask uh, uh you know to to consider that and take that into consideration when we look at ours mm -hmm. okay so asatab i mean if if we accept this that okay we need a system that works for us and we need a system where we need competence and education and research and thinking and we need to be able to select the best people who are capable of taking judgments as well as making presenting cases as well as uh um appeal etc this is i'm just trying to configure in my mind let's say if i'm infographic of the law uh legal system where would i intend to make the reform i mean where should the reform begin asatab unmute yourself hmm. yeah. yeah i just did uh, so i think it has to start at the very basic level at the primary school level to be honest i mean that is where you start your education and uh, and and we we get school uh, students in law schools from uh, who have passed uh, higher uh, higher secondary education and and we need to put our school education on the right track and and then of course uh, in the law schools the, the education has to be more critical it should be um, uh, it should equip our students to think uh, independently and that is where you know the culture of independence uh, should take roots uh, otherwise you cannot make independent judges you cannot uh, grow uh, independent lawyers independently thinking uh, lawyers and uh, you cannot have a better academy um, uh, otherwise uh, we are we are i think we will remain in this crisis like situation but the problem is that why is that not happening and that is um, a question which we need to um, uh, think about and 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 i it seems to me that lawyers themselves uh, being the regulatory uh, body the bar councils they are 
themselves a hurdle. The judiciary is itself a hurdle in uh, not allowing uh, better legal education to take root in this country. I think um, that uh, is the uh, problem. Osama, let me return to you. Please tell me, I accept what all these guys are saying, but I still want to know that there must be a play, pro, place to begin. I agree fixing the education system is important, and I totally agree with what Asad is saying. Yes, fixing the education system is important, and we, we've talked about it, and we're working on it. But I think to understand the legal system is also important that it, it, in a sense, we have to begin somewhere to make the change. Um, okay, let's take the exam at the, the lower judiciary level. How can we tamper with the exam? For example, take the civil service exam. We've done some work on that. And quite frankly, I, I think the civil service exam is totally unnecessary. Making people memorize American history or making people memorize stray facts from Doga's general knowledge or something is not going to create a good administrator. Should we have an exam for judges? I don't know. Is there an exam for judges in the States? Um, or should we have a different method of selection? So, I mean, my answer would depend on whether we're talking about district court judges or whether we're talking about appellate court judges, because okay. it's a different kind of uh, okay. parameter we're looking at. When we look at appellate court judges, uh, when we look at the rest of the world, uh, the mm -hmm. factors which come into consideration are either quantifiable parameters of performance. So, mm -hmm. in a lot of sophisticated jurisdictions, they look at the fact whether these people have been very successful lower court judges, or if they were lawyers, whether they've won a lot of cases, were they seminal cases, did they play an important role? I mean, they go all the way back in the US to your law school degree, which law school, what grades, whether you were on the law review, which judge did you clerk with? So these are comparatively objective parameters. You could argue that they are a bit classist because not everybody can get access to those things, but they do promote uh, uh, meritocracy. The second way of looking at it is, process-based uh, filters. So, you know, you don't just have an institution uh, picking its own people because then there's the chance of nepotism, collusion, or the same kind of people manning the judiciary. I think this is a very important point to look at our judicial appointment history uh, in terms of a mechanism, because I think that will also partially answer your question in terms of the prescriptive, where should we go in? I personally think we need to make interventions at multiple levels, at the institutional level as well as at the educational level. But this is what happened when we tried to make an intervention through a constitutional amendment in order to fix one particular problem. And that problem was the lack of transparency, the opaqueness, and the quality standards associated with the previous appointment of the judges' process to the high courts, right? So you then had in 2010, and my colleagues can correct me if I get a date or a detail wrong, the 18th Amendment. And the 18th Amendment came up for the first time with this dual process where the parliament was also going to be involved in the appointment of appellate judges. So you had a two-tiered process with a judicial commission and a parliamentary committee. And the parliamentary committee, of course, had representation both from the tre treasury and the opposition. What happened? There was a huge pushback. The weakness of the public discourse meant that that pushback at whoever's behest it was, whether it was institutional turf management, whether it was other forces who did not want to see the parliament play a role, whether it was this, uh, you know, generic distrust of politics and politicians. What happened was that they were forced to then come up with the 19th Amendment because the judiciary came out with a judgment where they asked for all kinds of things. And it was short of actually striking down a constitutional amendment, which is unheard of. 
but they said increase the number of judges further in the judicial commission and also that the parliamentary committee so the way it worked was that the judicial commission which was mostly judges would nominate people and the parliamentary committee would actually gauge the names of those people where are we today in view of all the judgments which came after that is that the parliamentary committee is now an entity in name only and we are actually worse off not only is the judicial appointment system totally controlled by the judges it is actually controlled by the chief justice because by and large he is the only one who can make nominations so you are back to square one actually you are worse off because earlier the president had a role there was toing and froing in that there's a complex jurisprudence around it there are multiple milestone judgments it's a separate discussion my point is this was a democratic parliamentary endeavor to make sure that the judges are more accountable now you see ultimately if a system is completely controlled by the top coterie of judges unless and until you make a difference there you'll have to negotiate with them for all of these things whether it's autonomy for the federal judicial academy whether it is a more rigorous exam at the public service commission level or appointment of district court judges it's the same problem with the removal of judges look at the supreme judicial council mechanism which is a very interesting and topical debate right now because after decades of darkness and and complete lack of activity in which perhaps we've removed two or three judges through the supreme judicial council the two judges one of whom has been removed and one who is they are trying to remove right now are highly politically contentious situations once again a process completely controlled by the judiciary so i mean i think it is more or less unprecedented to have a system where the judiciary controls its own performance assessment manages its own budget is not answerable to anyone appoints its own people removes them if it wants to or doesn't want to i i can't think of another system like that and you can well imagine that even with the best of intentions such a system will eventually become it will perform below par and it will become self serving but usama let me ask you another question what sure. is the law ministry doing in all this in the us the department of justice plays a very strong role if it doesn't interfere but it plays a strong monitoring and evaluation role and does actually have a say in many things the attorney general and thing so we have a very strong we have a law ministry we have an attorney general how does how does that work we ostensibly have a law ministry we have a law minister who resigns on a routine basis and then comes back yeah. after yeah. choosing clients to represent so if you want to stretch it yes it's a law ministry but i'm sorry to say that the law ministry and the governmental policies depending on which government you're talking about are deeply subjugated and and compromised and and part of the reason has been the huge and acute political instability which the political governments have faced so first it was martial laws then it was article 58 to b and four governments dissolved time and again political governments find themselves uh, on the tenterhooks and you know before a court trying to legitimize their own existence so therefore they take a very subservient view but having said that whenever you have some coalescence and some sort of accumulation of political forces there has been an attempt to reform the overall justice system and the 10th the 18th amendment is a good example of that of course the biggest slogan right now is to undo the 18th amendment and you could quibble on and disagree with certain aspects of it or debate it but the fact of the matter is that the 18th amendment is perhaps the most recent and the most robust a uh, manifestation of collective political consensus on certain important structural issues without these structural issues in these the judiciary has an overwhelming uh, all encompassing role when it comes to even democratic sustainability in pakistan you know that is our history we cannot take a decontextualized view of it 
So given that particular history, it becomes incredibly important to see what the concentration of political power here means. Now, the irony of it is that much as a lot of this securing of the boundaries and protection of the turf is being done to secure the independence of the judiciary, the independence of the judiciary is insecure and compromised in so many other ways. Uh, and because of so many other forces, which we all know about, and it has manifested itself in some very key judgments in the recent past as well. So this is a highly politically polarized situation where there is a lot of vicious fighting for institutional survival. So it's not just a simple case for a law reform amendment or an exam. You touch anything and your fingers will get burnt because they'll push you back because they're protecting the turf for a lot of additional reasons as well. And then it's the inertia. Um, as I said, the only time this discourse opened, because all through our reform history, we've had law commission reports, which have done incremental things. They've not looked at things systemically, but still they made some good recommendations. The only time this discourse opened up was when these foreign programs came. And one big advantage for them is that they actually force the judges to also allow other people to also sit on the table, because there are some bells and whistles and incentives for them to do so. So one managed to, or we managed to collectively introduce some reforms. But I think there's a huge structural and cultural issue in terms of judicial decision-making and how the institution is being run. Fascinating. Let me also bring in Ikramul Haq, another very good lawyer who's available with us. He's been writing something in the chat box. So Ikram Sab, can you tell us how to unravel this huge puzzle, this Gordian knot? Ikram Sal. Um, let me unmute and... Uh, Go ahead. You are, you are fine. We can hear you. Uh, my point is that uh, unless uh, we have a transparent system of appointment of judges through parliamentary committee, it's a combined house committee of Senate and uh, if nominations are even made by two justices, at provincial level, or at, uh, at, uh, but then matter comes to elevation to Supreme Court, there should be a right of uh, <coughs> questioning them, and there should be open hearing in courts uh, in uh, in before House committees. Uh, this can uh, also be applied to the accountability process uh, because this internal process of accountability. Uh, is also not uh, desirable. In that case as well, we should have a, a joint house committee uh, for accountability of uh, all uh, judges, generals, and even parliamentarians. So that is the only way participative democracy and uh, dispensation of justice can work. That These are only my comments. And uh, I have written a lot of articles, me and Huzema, on this subject, uh, which I have posted as well, uh, which people can see. Yes, that's my point. Thank you very much. Look, centralization is our in, our, in, in our blood. We like to centralize everything from medicine to education to, um, you know, even the roads, everything has to be centralized. The police has to be centralized. Everything has to be centralized. I think that's maybe a feudal culture or whatever, we don't like to give, delegate. I've seen even in, in, in organizations, even in corporate entities, we don't like to delegate. All the power rests with the boss, the state has the checkbook. Now that is something that I don't know how we can conquer it. But returning to, 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 to this subject, I mean, judicial academies interest me a lot. 
Osama, you said you set up the law for the Judicial Academy, you worked on the Punjab law, etc. How come autonomy was not built into the Judicial Academy? When I look at the US, for example, even, even the army uh, academies have a huge amount of autonomy. For example, a Pakistani is teaching in the US Army Academy with a Pakistani passport. So I mean, you know, how come we don't have that autonomy here? No, so we definitely built it in the law, which we proposed. Uh, <laughs> I think some of the fundamental features of that law was, I mean, <clears throat> notwithstanding the fact that it was very well understood that without continuing training, you can't have a certain quality of judicial output. Uh, there have been over the last decade and a half, multiple detailed evaluations, assessments, and the original law itself called for a more or less autonomous governing body uh, for the Judicial Academy, which had representation of the judges, but also other stakeholders in justice. And that was supposed to reflect also in terms of the kind of faculty which came to teach, both permanent and visiting. We also recommended, we have recommended over the years, very clear pedagogy examination systems, uh, how courses should be developed, how research can be. But you know, time and again, you see that the kind of courses, barring a few exceptions, which are being offered are highly suboptimal. So, you know, if they get through just introducing or reintroducing civil court judges to, uh, let's say, civil procedure code and criminal procedure code, which they should have really learned rigorously in the law school. So you're making up for the weaknesses of the law school in the judicial academy. Hmm. The mid-level judges require a very different kind of training. They are the ones who actually govern the courts. They need to know a lot about administration, hmm. about uh, complex cases. So you really need customized, tailored trainings at different levels, which really means that you need a robust faculty, which really means that you need a meritorious open system to be able to hire them. Hmm. It all boils down to the fact that the fundamental decision making once again is very much restricted and, and controlled by the High Court and the Chief Justice. This is something we warned against and we drafted a law against that. And this is something which has been recommended time and again, but it's the same, call it elite capture, call it a special interest capture. And the fact that the conversation around the judges and the courts in Pakistan, I feel is so underdeveloped because we talk just about some broad manifestations of the problem. I've hardly come across any conversations about the kind of issues we are talking about. Of course, Ikram Saab and some other eminent uh, lawyers keep writing and you know, the discourse is still, it does not create enough pressure for these people to uh, be able to look at it. And, and I think we need to somehow, and, and, and a big issue there once again, you know, everything connects to everything else is that we hardly have any law schools of any credibility. Everywhere in the world, it's the law professors, it's the law students, it's the law journals, which create a very protected and important uh, sort of discourse, critiquing the judges. And, you know, and they're given a lot of freedom to do that. Hmm. A lot of people who actually write on the law here are lawyers, hmm. which is fine, but which can also be problematic because they're slightly compromised. They have to appear before the same judges. But I would much rather that they still wrote because they're knowledgeable and some of them are very bold and some of them are insightful. So I think we are missing an entire segment of important, necessary commentators on the system. Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, the discourse is underdeveloped, few and far between people talk about it and business just goes on. There's a lot of resentment when it comes to other counterpart institutions. I work with them, so I know they sometimes exert pressure. Secondly, you know, separation of powers is, is an important concept, but we also know that it's not a rigid concept. Everywhere there are porous boundaries, there are shifting walls, depends on the situation, depends on your context. And we are talking about a lot of jurisdictions which actually came up with the concept of separation of powers and they adhere to it, 
And yet it turns out, as uh, Ikram Sahib was also saying, that when it comes to appointment and removal processes, the other, uh, uh, the other important institution has a role to play. And that is the important system of checks and balances, which actually keeps separation of power and independence of judiciary intact. We seem to have taken separation of powers as a concept, but we're not talking about checks and balances and you know, the fact that all the institutions need to balance this power. And so you have a huge concentration of power, unaccountable power. Hmm. Hmm. Sarah, you studied at an American university. Okay. Now, when you study in American university, I believe, um, having seen paper chase, that the American legal education system, I've got a niece studying there right now, and uh, she's studying 18 hours a day and doesn't have the time to talk to her parents or anybody. And paper chase also showed us very well what the education system was like. Now, your law professors there, which university did you go to, by the way? I went to Michigan. Okay. Now, the law professors there are institutions unto themselves. Even the Supreme Court doesn't look up to them. Right? So, how is it that we can't have this set up here? The respect for the for the legal profession, and I remember I was in Chicago, and Judge Richard Posner used to reach, teach in Chicago when he was a judge at the same time. So how can we how can we even think of getting a system like this in Pakistan? How can we get professors that eminence that they deserve? <laughs> That's a very big question. Uh, you know, I mean, I think the answer to why we can't have an American legal education system here would probably mirror an answer to why we can't have an American medical education system here, why we can't have, you know, I mean, I, you, I, there are so many uh, uh, reasons and, and really foundational reasons why um, it wouldn't, and I'm not, and I'm not of the view that we necessarily need to borrow everything from there either. I, you know, the thing is, though, the reality is that that law school is, uh, you know, legal education is all well and good, but there is a big gap even in in America between legal education and actually becoming a lawyer, right? So the skills that were taught in law school, you know, even my colleague who where they actually went out to practice, uh, there was very, there was not as much, there was there was actually very little from your actual academic training that you took to actually being um, a lawyer on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and even the bar exams there, I think, are a very poor um, measure of, um, of how you will fare as a lawyer or as a judge, but you do need some kind of a training mechanism and perhaps that's as good as any as Osama um, also indicated. So, uh, so you know, I mean, I think there are also limitations uh, in, in that education system. It's also a supremely expensive education system and law students incur tremendous amounts of debt. Um, and, and a lot of law schools have actually, legal education in the US has become quite uh, controversial for this reason as well. Um, so I think that there are issues uh, uh, there as well. But obviously, like you said, you know, um, there is a lot of academic discourse around development of law, development of jurisprudence. There is a whole branch of studies, of critical legal studies, which has um, 
actually changed the way in which law is interpreted um, to achieve gender equality, to achieve something close to racial equality. And a lot of that uh, movement was transforming the law and transforming how judges apply the law came from legal academia. So, uh, you know, just as an example, um, a lot of the laws that we have around gender equality in the U.S. right now, both codified laws and uh, judge-made laws were, you know, inspired by a few law professors, one of them being Oops. Professor Catherine McKinnon, who taught uh, at Yale Law School. Okay. Well, let me take a question here. Uh, Mahmoud Khalid. So I got briefly disconnected. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you, sir. Something happened. So where's Nadim? Dr. Nadim has disconnected right now. Okay, so uh, he's back. So I okay. missed the tail end of what Sarah said. But Nadim, can I just add something to what she said? Go ahead, go ahead. So I think she made a very important uh, point also about uh, the need to be wary of constantly transplanting things, right? So I think there are lots of uh, good practices which we need to look at and the system is much more advanced, but she's absolutely right that uh, there are huge issues there as well. Having said that, paper chase is now ancient history because as um, you know almost a decade ago places like harvard completely revisited its curriculum and even before that so that was a particular time but i think the critical legal studies movement she mentions is very important because it's still a minority movement and we need to understand that when it comes to knowledge production it's only the top 20 30 law schools who do that the rest are more like vocational factories but at least they train those people well in what they need to do um, but the critical legal studies movement is very important because one of their big insights is how the law schools in many ways help perpetuate a certain socioeconomic system, right? So they did this huge study, for instance, on the elite law schools and how 80 to 90% of the lawyers who graduate go on to sort of man the Wall Street firms and a certain notion of the economy. Uh, and so a lot of people have issues with that. Mr. Posner may not, but there are many other, of course, intellectuals of a different inclination. But one thing is common, whether it is Judge Posner or whether it is Professor Duncan Kennedy, uh, there are certain very well-established parameters of what quality means. And there are a lot of avenues for discourse so that you can actually have that debate. There are places where you can publish. And when those things are published, they are actually something which are actually cited in the Supreme Court of the United States. And in, uh, you know, so the, 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 what the professors and the really high quality student journals produce is actually part of your larger jurisprudence in the sense that it influences it. So that's something which is, of course, highly desirable. But it turns out that in those kinds of systems, what eventually is 
looked upon as a robust jurisprudence cannot simply be coming through the courts. It has to come through the quality of lawyers, the quality of academics, the quality of public intellectuals, the quality of other governmental and non-governmental counterparts who are part of these larger discussions. That culture is also missing because of the same centralization and almost usurpation of this function. This cannot be a centralized function, not just for reasons of efficiency and good governance. It cannot be because you don't have just one good idea which has to prevail here. This is something which has to be open to multiplicity of ideas and to discussion. I think that's a very powerful argument for decentralization. And I think we should definitely um, think of decentralizing everywhere in the country, even universities themselves. Vice chancellors tend to have too much power. So that should be done. Let me quickly take two or three questions. Uh, Tahir Dinsa. Tahir, are you there? Can mute me. Now, can you hear me now? We can so my fine. question, my question is simply to Mr. Osama Sadiqi, you seem to be very fluent and you actually think that you know what you're saying. Do you think in this country, the principal question is not administration, it is political. A judge who was appointed took oath from General Musharraf, legalized legal framework order, and he was supporting lawyers movement. Now lawyer movements is supporting those judges who are appointed outside of the outside of the real framework uh, through the promotion and all that. And those judges are again lawyers. So this kind of collusion, and that is also supported from outside the country. And at times, this side of collusion is, uh, I mean, it's not uh, beneficial to the state at all. So something very powerful need to be done. Do you think? Okay, guys, hang on to the questions. I'll just take a few and come back to you. Uh, Mahmoud Khalid. And if anybody wants to raise questions, raise your hand now. Otherwise, it'll be too late. Mahmoud uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So my uh, question has two uh, uh, sections. One is related to that uh, we have lower courts, we have specialized courts, and then the appellate and upwards. Uh, are the problems across the courts of the same nature? The second issue is what I have personally observed at the lower courts that often the missing uh, juries in uh, terms of helping the judges uh, are the missing elements. For example, in one of the cases, we had an issue uh, related to the rules of origin, where we had to establish from where a particular import was done. So it was difficult for us to make the lawyer understand about it and also to the judge that what exactly this law means. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Let me go back to the panel if there are no more questions. Okay. Um, uh, Sarah, why don't you take the first question? Uh, whatever you like. Closing remarks, questions, whatever you like. Sarah, go ahead. Uh, so I'll uh, try to respond quickly to the question about whether we're seeing, I, I understood that the question was whether we see problems across the levels at the at the uh, district court level, at the appellate level. So I would say uh, yes. In fact, um, my, uh, my personal experience, uh, and I know other uh, lawyers share that, is that at least, you know, I've, I've often actually seen quicker disposal uh, of cases and more decisive judgments uh, and a better handling of my casework in the lower courts than in the high courts. Um, there sometimes tend to be more delays and more of a backlog. So even though typically um, our higher court judges are more uh, qualified, more experienced of a higher 
caliper that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, better case management and uh, you know swifter and more effective justice. So yes, I would say that um, you know it's not confined to just one level of our judiciary. Hmm. Hmm. I think the problems are uh, uh, common. Uh, we see, see the same kind of chaos both at the district judiciary level as well as in the high courts. There are delays and the, 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 uh, the judgment writing is not good. Lawyers' quality is not good. The assistance they provide uh, is not good. So I, I think problems are the same at all levels. Uh, I don't see in, uh, higher judiciary judges engaging with lawyers uh, well enough, and I don't see them engaging with the uh, judgments they uh, reconsider at the appellate forum. So um, I, I, I think that uh, there is a very serious uh, uh, issue so far as um, the understanding of their job is concerned. Uh, at many levels, um, I think, uh, and it's a, it's a very uh, deep and very uh, uh, serious problem. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Osama, why don't you now try and wrap it up? But my further question to you would be, is it not the fact that we have just ossified the colonial system and in ossifying it, we haven't figured out how to even maintain it, how to even manage it. So we've got an ossified colonial system that can deteriorating all the time. And we don't have the intellectual wherewithal to deal with it. Thank you, Nadim. The uh, colonial sort of uh, argument is a persuasive one. I mean, in my own sort of book, um, I look at the impact of colonial law uh, on the kinds of systems which uh, Pakistan and uh, India have inherited and other colonies. And to a great extent, yes, there are practices, approaches, cultures, which still permeate, and hence the entire area of post-colonial studies and all that. But I think it's also perhaps uh, not advisable to completely look at that, because we've lived in a dynamic, tumultuous post-independence period. I think the judiciary has also changed and evolved in different ways, and there has been all kinds of contestation. So what we have now has to be taken on face value as well. It has a heritage. It has a structure, it has a sociology, and I think all these aspects need to be looked at. And so the point I want to make, and this gentleman who just asked Mr. Tahir uh, a question, is that I am a bit reluctant to oversimplify matters. I think it's also incredibly important for us to problematize things properly, right? So this is, I think, a very complex institution. It is important to break it down into multiple, multiple kinds of issues. When we oversimplify it, then what happens is that some people think that the only issue is political. Some people think that the only issue is technological, so we need new computers. Uh, that's not the case. I think we need to look at problems as interconnected problems, which permeate the issue. So centralization we spoke about, but it's also upgradation of skills. It's also higher education. It's also an opening up of the discourse to other people. It's also creating demand for justice, you know? So there has to be there have to be more considered and more vocal voices outside talking about this. This has to become a main nine o'clock news item ultimately for there to be pressure. I did mention it last time as well that one single pithy op-ed has more of an impact uh, in terms of how the judiciary responds to it. I remember I was in the US uh, and when the Swat Taliban thing took place and I uh, was talking to a lot of friends and 
turned out there's a heightened anxiety within the judiciary to come up with some quick reforms because there was this fear that the Swat Taliban may actually reach Islamabad. How do we create that kind of urgency for them to start doing something? So I, I don't think, I mean, the problems, a lot of problems we're talking about predate the lawyers' movement as well. You had the same levels of inefficiency, the same levels of centralization. Secondly, the lawyers' movement is also not just something which was co-opted by someone. It's a more complex phenomenon. And a lot of work has come out now on what the lawyers' movement was and where it went and what those aspirations are. So I think we need to engage with a lot more informed scholarship which is coming out. There are lots of young Pakistanis writing very well about this. I think we need to create space for thought and dialogue instead of just opinions. I think we need to promote empiricism so that we can go by something, at least on certain issues. You know, what is the statement? I kept coming across this. Oh, no, no, we have come up with a lot of reforms. So when you present them hard data, that this is where you stand in terms of quantifiable performance. Um, and the third is, yes, it's deeply imbued in politics. There I agree with you. So this entire notion of judicial appointment to the appellate courts, judicial removal, is something which is not just a constitutional question. There's a political history to it. There's a political contestation and posturing and turf management to it. And so the solution is not just technocratic. The solution will also have to be political. There have to be the right political forces pushing for the right things. And then you need technical experts to tell you about the technical things. And as I, at least in my career, I've experienced that more often than not, when you're talking about governance, public policy, and reform, you need both. You need the technocratic and you need the political slash sociological. So I think we need to look at this problem from multiple lenses. There can be compartmentalized individual recommendations for individual reforms. By the way, there are plenty of those out there. If somebody is willing to implement them. Million dollar question is, what will incentivize, encourage, coax, or force them to do it? And that's, I think, what we need to be talking about a lot more. Osama, before we break up, I'd like all three of you to comment on this too. Today we had the APC. And like many of you, I also heard a bit of it, not all of it, but a little bit of the speeches that happened. And we've had these APCs, we've had parliamentary debates, and we've listened to them, and we've had TV talk shows, which are like also like parliamentary debates, which happen every day. The subject of the judiciary does not excite anybody. Nawaz Sharif, Zardari, they never mention it. They never mention the judiciary, the civil service, any of the institutions. Our parliamentarians, our politicians, our leaders are just not interested in the details of the of of institutions and governance and administration and justice. I mean, that's Isn't that a something that is very difficult to overcome? So let me take a bet with you, if I may. Uh, you're absolutely right. Institutional reform is something nobody seems to have the patience for. It's neither, you know, glittery, it's difficult work, it's messy. And I think people who have ignored judicial reform and, and law and justice reform are paying the price for it now. Yeah. So think of the APC, and my bet with you is that if we go the full circle and there is another resumption of the previous status quo and those people come into power again, there'll be a lot of focus on the judiciary and a lot of focus on the system of law and order and accountability. Some of it may be parochial, some of it may be self-motivated, even vindictive. But I think we need to know now shake up a lot of these things. So whatever the motivation may be, we're not going to be able to ignore these areas anymore. Oh. Okay, great. Thank you. Sarah, Asad, any last words? Sarah, I think politicians words? did the right thing 
when they introduced the 18th amendment and they introduced uh, a new mechanism for the appointment of judges that was a good step uh, which has been watered down by judicial interference and that's unfortunate so um, it's not that uh, the politicians are uh, totally incapable of doing good things they are capable i think and at least uh, some of them are um, and some good steps uh, uh, you know i mean uh, some good thinking has been done uh, so far as judiciary's uh, reform is concerned uh, but uh, as as it has been said uh, more than enough that uh, politics of this country determines which way we uh, move uh, in reforming our institutions so i think the politics uh, the civil military imbalance uh, that, that that lies at the root cause of so many of our problems sarah anything sarah you want to say anything last point uh, yeah, so i just one, one thing to add what uh, usama and asil said and i think that you know we will need to have more um uh, discussion and democratic debate and that space needs to be opened up for us to really talk about why there is this lack of accountability and i think just to mention two points which are casting a cloud with this you know i think as uh, usama mentioned there is a judicial commission that points uh, judges and uh, at the at the superior court level and i think it's it's important to note for people watching that they that the judicial commission itself set up these judicial commission rules which says that the proceedings whereby the nomination of judges is determined are to be held in camera so they have decided to make these proceedings very secret so as to really eliminate any democratic discussion eliminate political parties or civil society even having a debate or dialogue about who is appointed and then another disturbing trend is also this use of contempt of court uh, which we're seeing uh, by the superior judiciary to um really um deter any discussion debate or criticism about what's happening and i think that the, the this kind of secrecy and this kind of resistance to criticism is uh, going to stand in the way of institutional reform uh, which we know is much needed and uh, you know um, i think that's going to cast a cloud over it so i think the only way around it really is to create that space for more democratic debate and discussion around this well thank you very much folks there you go uh, we are trying to open up that democratic space for discussion that sarah's talking about and i strongly endorse what all three speakers have said that what is really necessary is a very strong debate in this country because debate is what will lead to reform if we can or change whatever well good things happen when humans come together and begin to talk about it that's the story of humanity and uh, we can go back and cite many chapter and verse on that unfortunately not unfortunately but fortunately i guess so whatever way you want to put it imran khan used to say this all the time in his tv interviews and conversations that fix the judiciary and you'll fix the country but somehow when you get into the seat of power it becomes very difficult to do things but only if intellectuals begin to open up space and ideas does change happen and the any leader who comes into power is supported in making change not just by the fact that there's a debate but also by the fact that the debate calls up good ideas so my thanks to osama to asad and to sara for bringing us together 
for making this happen. We will, inshallah, continue to work on the judiciary as on all other institutions. We will try and talk about all other institutions. PID is a public think tank. Our job is to understand all Pakistani institutions, and we will call upon people like Osama in every area to help us do that. Thank you, Osama. Help us plan the next chain of Thank you very much, Nadeem, and thank you to my co-panelists and for everyone for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All the best, folks. Good afternoon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good afternoon.